couldn't help but to picture Peter uh, wanting to come to Jesus, seeing Jesus walking on the water. And Jesus, uh, Peter said, if you call me, and Jesus called him, and he walked on the surface of the water. And as long as he kept his eyes on Jesus, he could walk on the water with Jesus. Oh my goodness, what a lesson for us all. Ah, what a great worship service. This is so good. And, uh, and now, we are back to Daniel once again. Uh, we did chapter 7 last week, chapter 8 this morning, so if you have your, your Bibles, uh, turn there. Next Sunday, CJ is going to be bringing the message on Daniel's prayer in chapter 9, and so uh, looking forward to that, I always look forward to CJ bringing the, the Word. Uh, we are in Daniel 8 this morning, and before we get started with that, let's pray together. Um, Father, we are so grateful. So grateful for all that you do for us. You've been teaching us, not only throughout this day, but throughout every day, so that we can hear you more clearly, so we can follow you and know each step that we should take. And Father, as we, as we listen to your Spirit, as we soak up your Word today, oh, teach us what you want us to know. You know tomorrow. Every tomorrow in this room. And you know, Father, what we will need for those tomorrows. And so, Father, prepare us. If there's someone here that needs to know you today, that needs to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, I pray today will be the day of their salvation. Father, for, for those of us that already know you as Savior, as Lord, as Master of our lives, we just ask that you speak to us. We're ready to listen. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. In his book, Every day deserves a chance. Max Lucado gives a unique insight into how our God provides for us. He writes, When my daughters were single-digit ages, two, five, and seven, I wowed them with a, a, a miracle. I, I told them the story of Moses and the manna, and I invited them to follow me on a wilderness trek through our house. Who knows, I suggested, manna may fall from the sky again. We dressed in sheets and sandals and did our best Bedouin hike through the bedrooms. The girls, on my instruction, complained to me, Moses, of hunger and demanded I take them back to Egypt, or at least the kitchen. And when we entered the den, I urged them to play up their parts, to, to groan and moan and beg for food. Look up, I urged. Manna might fall any minute. Two-year-old Sarah obliged with no questions, but Jenna and Andrea, well, they had their doubts. I mean, how can manna fall from the ceiling? Huh, just like the Hebrews. How can God feed us in the wilderness? Just like you and me. We look at tomorrow's demands, next week's bills, next month's silent calendar. Our future looks as barren as the Sinai Desert. How can I face my future? Well, God tells 
you and me, what I told my daughters. Look up. And when my daughters did look up, manna fell. Well, not manna. Uh, Vanilla wafers dropped from the ceiling and landed on the carpet. Sarah squealed with delight and started munching, but and Andrea were old enough to request an explanation. My answer was simple. I knew the itinerary. I knew we would enter this room. Vanilla wafers fit safely on the top side of the ceiling fan blades. Uh, So I placed them there in advance, and when they groaned and moaned, I just turned on the switch. God's answer to the Hebrews was similar. Did he know their itinerary? Did he know they would grow hungry? Yes, and yes. And at the right time, he tilted the manna basket toward earth. Now, obviously, Locato uh, takes some artistic license with the story, but he makes a good point, right? From our perspective, manna from heaven is what? It's, It's impossible, right? But... For God. Hmm. Well, it's, it, it's no more difficult for him than vanilla wafers on a ceiling fan, right? He knows what we're going through. He knows just what we will need to get through it, both physically and spiritually. The manna he provides, it's more than just a meal. It's evidence that whatever we face in life, our God is always Enough, always, always, always. Now, it may not be as overt as waking up to find enough actual bread on the ground to feed two million people, but still, we've prayed those prayers, right? Sometimes grumbling our request, other times humbling our hearts, but ultimately, we have all experienced God's mercies, God's gifts. At times, they come so imperceptibly, we don't even notice until we suddenly realize we're no longer carrying that burden anymore of some unmet need. But God indeed saw that need. He acted upon that need. Maybe He did not do as we expected, but time and faith have taught us our God always provides whatever we need. Paul's words are still true, right? Philippians chapter 4, 19. My God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now, maybe that is why God sprinkles prophecies throughout what He has written to us. As a continual reminder to look up to expect a loving, all-powerful, heavenly dad to continuously act on our behalf. His prophecies typically give us just enough information to reveal evidence of his handiwork. As we said last week, his fingerprints are all over history. Take, for example, our, our text. Now, you may recall the book of Daniel can be divided in half with the first six chapters focused on specific characters, uh, Daniel, his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, as well as the kings that they encountered, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, and Darius. 
The final six chapters focus almost entirely on a series of prophecies that were given during that same period of time, but fulfilled during the centuries, even millennia that followed. Parts of those visions, well, they tell of events in our own future, right? E- events just prior to the second coming of Christ. As Daniel 8 begins, it's early in the reign of Belshazzar, the last ruler of Babylon. Daniel still had a part in political affairs, but apparently not to the same extent as when he served under Nebuchadnezzar. In our text, Daniel has a vision in which he is in the city of Susa, uh, a royal Persian city, later prominent in the book of Esther. In the vision, he once again, just as in chapter 7, experiences great beasts that represent great kingdoms. Uh, This time, two beasts are seen. The first a ram, the other a male goat. We're told later by the angel Gabriel, these beasts specifically represent the Medo-Persians and the Macedonian Greeks. Each would dominate their world for a time, but neither their power or position would be permanent. One ruler in particular, uh, Alexander the Great, conquered most of the known world in less than a decade and a half, but his sudden death left his great empire divided among his four generals who were by no means his equal. Each took his own portion of Alexander's kingdom and then they and their descendants spent the next two centuries battling each other for supremacy. At one point, a particularly troublesome ruler comes to the forefront. In a, in, a vision, in a vision that Daniel has here, he is portrayed as a little horn that rises to greatness. Now, I say troublesome because it appears this ruler is bent on wreaking havoc on God's people. The glorious land, Daniel calls it. It was one thing when various kingdoms of the world were fighting each other. But now it appeared that this little horn would cause a great deal of harm to Daniel's beloved Israel. He had spent most of his life in captivity. Prophecies had revealed to him that his people would eventually return. But Daniel, see, he was still waiting. He was still longing for the day. And now it would seem that even after that return, Daniel's vision was speaking of continuing oppression of his people. Certain phrases would have leapt off the page for any Hebrew that would be reading Daniel's account. This ruler would challenge the host of heaven, referring to those who fight for God. Some would be thrown to the ground and trampled, As the ruler continued his dominance, he would even challenge the prince of the host, God himself. Daily offerings would cease. The sanctuary would be overthrown. Truth would be cast to the ground. And all the while, that evil ruler would grow stronger and stronger and stronger. Suddenly, Daniel begins to overhear a conversation, apparently between, uh, between angels. 
One asked, well, how long will all this last? To which, uh, to which came the somewhat cryptic reply, well, 2,300 evenings and mornings. Only then will the sanctuary be restored to its rightful state. Daniel was, well, flummoxed. He had no clue uh, how to interpret what he had just seen and, and, and heard. But even as he wondered, our God, who is such a, a good, good father, he responded through his angel, Gabriel, sending him to, um, to make Daniel understand. Although Gabriel had the appearance of a man, there was no hiding the fact that he was more than just that. And so when Daniel saw him, he was so frightened he, he nearly fainted. He fell on his face. But Gabriel reassured him, and he said this. He said, understand, O son of man, this vision is for the time of the end. Now, confusion arises at this point over that phrase, time of the end, which is repeated by Gabriel again in verse 19. Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of indignation, it means wrath and often refers to God's discipline. For it refers to the appointed time of the end. Of course, the natural question would be the end of, of what? Sometimes in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, it refers to the end of the world and the return of Christ. But in his commentary, among others, Sinclair Ferguson says, the Old Testament use of this phrase often refers to the conclusion of the problem at hand. That is, the end of another important period of time. Now, if this vision refers to the latter stages of God's discipline of his people, of Israel, I believe it does. We'll look at this more as we move through the book of Daniel. It would certainly fit in that period after they returned to the homeland, but before the birth of Christ. See, throughout those years, God's people continued to face oppression. Why? Because they failed to learn from their mistakes. They kept repeating the same sins over and over again. You go back through the minor prophets and through other, other prophecies that, that spoke to the people of those days, you, you find them looking like the same old Israel, doing the same old sins. Stubborn faithlessness marked their actions. And as a result, God's discipline continued. I, and I, I remind you, God disciplines those he loves. He disciplines us for our good. And that was certainly true of his discipline of Israel. Things finally came to a head in the second century before Christ when a man by the name of Antiochus IV came to power in the Syrian portion of Alexander's empire. Now, he wasn't supposed to be the one on the throne. He wasn't supposed to be ruling. But when the rightful uh, ruler, his brother, died suddenly, Antiochus took advantage of the fact that the heir was uh, his 10-year-old nephew, who at the time was living all the way over in Rome. 
taking advantage of both his age and his absence, Antiochus seized control and refused to let go of it. And what does that have to do with Israel and their discipline? Antiochus IV became one of the most bitter and brutal enemies of Israel, especially the religious leaders. You see, Antiochus ruled in Syria to the north of Israel, but he had his sights set on Egypt to the south of Israel, and of course that put God's people smack dab in the middle. When he began his military campaigns against Egypt, he tried to get the Jews to join him, but they refused. And Antiochus assessed the problem as a religious issue that could only be resolved by getting rid of the Jewish religion. And, by the way, also getting rid of the Jewish God. Antiochus himself actually took on a title for himself, and you may have heard this in history, Antiochus Epiphanes, which means Antiochus the Shining One or the enlightened one, or the godlike one. The Jews who opposed him had another name for him, Antiochus Epimenes, uh, that is, Antiochus the madman. Unfortunately, there were simply not enough Jews that did oppose him, at least for a while, and that left the door open for Antiochus to brutally oppress all of the rest. See, most were simply too comfortable in their, in their sin to, to go up against a guy like Antiochus. And I feel as if Satan is doing much the same thing in our world. Lulling us into a false sense of security. Allowing us to have all the stuff we want, right? I mean, think about the things that we're able to do today, that we could not do 10 years, 20 years, 30 years ago. Think about all the toys we've got that are just amazing. And so we just assume, well, we must be doing things right. But I'm pretty sure that history will look back on, on this time and say that we were doing anything but right. The people were just comfortable. And as a result, they had a great deal of difficulty dealing with Antiochus. Gabriel interprets Daniel's vision, and his description of this dominating horn fits Antiochus to a T. Verse 23, and at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one which understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. In other words, he would seize power that was not his. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. And that word is simply the word, the holy ones. Those who are dedicated to God, those people who are standing for God, he will destroy. By his cunning, he shall make, this term, he will make deceit, 
prosper under his hand. It spoke of that time, and very few things speak more to our time than deceit prospering under the hand of our rulers. It is like they took out Antiochus's playbook and said, he did it, let's do it ourselves. But to be honest with you, every generation since Antiochus and every generation that will follow us will have people that look just like Antiochus. Proud, arrogant, domineering, who will use every trick in the book to get people to follow them and walk away from Almighty God. Verse 25, by his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. I, I wonder, I wonder if as Daniel is writing this down, if he didn't stop there and say, yeah, I agree, it's just in his head. Without warning he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. Who's the prince of princes? Almighty God. Almighty God. He's going, to, he's going to thumb his nose at God. But I want you to notice the final result. He shall be broken, but not by any human hand. Now, we're going to have more to say about Antiochus as our series continues but I, I want to point out that this man who claimed to take the place of God met his end when he was seized with a mysterious illness, fell from his chariot, and died of a combination of the injuries that he sustained and that illness. He was indeed broken, but not by human hand. Our text ends with an exhausted Daniel being instructed by Gabriel to seal up the vision. In other words, this information was accurate, but it would find its true significance sometime in the distant future. It'll mean more to Daniel's descendants than his contemporaries. And with that, the vision comes to an end. And I, Daniel, I was overcome. I lay sick for many days, and then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled at the vision, and I didn't understand it. So if you're struggling to understand this section of scripture, you are certainly in good company. You're in the company of Daniel. But there are still some important truths I want you to take with you that I believe we can all understand. First, God knows. God knows. Knows what, you might ask? <laughs> Everything. He sees all of creation from beginning to end in a single glance. David said it best, Psalm 139, beginning with verse 1. I love this text. O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. Has he searched you? Absolutely. Does he know you? Absolutely. You know when I sit down. You know when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. And even before a word is on my tongue, 
Behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in, behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge. See, it's, it, it's too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? Yeah, if I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I, if I make my bed in Sheol, if I make my bed in the grave, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. If I say, well, surely the darkness shall cover me, the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day. For darkness is as light with you. So when you think that what's going on in your life down deep in the depths of your soul is somehow hidden from God, think again. See, He knows the truth about you. And He knows how to guide you in every situation. He knows how to get you out of every jam. He knows how to provide exactly what you need, even if you are convinced you don't need that. But He knows. See, He sees what lies ahead. He's already at work preparing whatever it will take to get you through. I, we were talking about this in class this morning. See, he, he's already been there. Wherever there is. See, that's why God gave Daniel these visions. He didn't give him the visions to trouble him, but to remind him. Whatever is out there in days ahead, God has been there first. Of course, there'll be tyrants and Oppressors who throw truth to the ground. That is the nature of sin and a fallen world. But God is bigger, God is better, God is stronger, and when truth gets cast to the ground, our God is right there to pick it and us up again. Daniel may have been troubled by what he saw, but I want you to notice he never stopped coming back to God because he knows that God knows and God cares. He cares deeply and completely about every aspect of your life. When a child offers up a, a prayer in the middle of the night because he or she is frightened by what they see in the darkness, God hears the prayer. When an elderly person is mourning the loss of their companion that had been with them, which felt like forever. Our God sees the tears they shed, gathers the tears in a bottle, and keeps them as a reminder of the pain and meets the needs and brings comfort. And what is it that Paul calls it? Peace that passes understanding? See, if it was peace we could understand, anybody could do that. It takes God to give us what no words can describe. 
(laughs) When the Apostle John was searching for just the right words to define love, he simply said, God is love. He cares for us like a father, his children, a husband, his wife, a shepherd, his sheep. Again, the psalmist puts it so well, doesn't he? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of death, What an incredible even though. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because there's nothing to fear? They don't live here. No, it's not because there's nothing to fear. It's for one simple reason. You are with me. That's it. That's it. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Right? See, our God cares so much. He has shown us glimpses of exactly what will happen. While the rest of the world is panicking because everything seems to be falling apart, we will know simply to look up because our redemption and our Redeemer is getting closer and closer and closer. Every prophecy, every promise is simply one more piece of evidence that God's got this, God's got us, and He's never letting go. The devil is going to tell you that he will let go. At some point, he will let go of you. And you won't be able to depend on him. And God is saying over and over again, don't listen to him. Don't listen to him. Our God knows. Our God cares. And one more thing. Our God God rules. He rules. It's amazing how deluded man can become thinking he's in charge of the world when he can't even be in charge of his next breath. Belshazzar thought he was in charge until God's finger engraved judgment on his walls. Alexander thought he was in charge until this one labeled the great by the kings of the earth met the king of heaven, found out what true greatness really is. Antiochus thought he was in charge until his entire life, his reign, was brought to an end apart from any human efforts. Yeah, I think they would have all done well to have read a letter that was written by a previous king. A king that God had humbled, but once humbled, a king God restored, his name was Nebuchadnezzar. This humble but wiser king wrote an open letter to the world. And it's recorded for all of us to read in Daniel 4. And in that letter, he acknowledges in no uncertain terms that God rules. Final lines of his letter, verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. 
I blessed the Most High. I praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion, it's an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as but they're accounted as nothing. And he, he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My, my counselors, my lords, they, they sought me and, and I was established in my kingdom And still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, I praise and extol and honor the King of Heaven. For all His works are right. His ways are just. And oh, those who walk in pride, believe me, He is able to humble. No doubt. No doubt. I don't know where you are in your relationship with Christ, but I do know this. If you don't have Him, you need Him. You need Him. He desires to save you, to cleanse every sin so that you can spend eternity with Him in heaven. He knows you from the inside out. He knows you through and through. He cares about you more than anyone else. Anyone. Isn't that amazing? He knows us. He knows even that sin. You know, that one that you just now thought of. And you thought, no way. He can't forgive that. Ah, blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from every sin. Even that one. And this God, He alone rules. He rules now. And He'll rule forever. King of kings. Lord of lords. That is a God you can trust. If you are not yet a Christian, let today be the day you surrender to Jesus. And if you're already an immersed believer in Jesus Christ, then by all means, may I just encourage you this one thing. Live like a believer in Christ. If there is something you need to do, then do it. If there is something you need to stop doing, then stop it. Live like a child of God. You are more than just dust with breath breathed in. You are God's sons. You are God's daughters. Our future, our future is heaven. And there is nothing in between that is bigger than our God. Live like you know God knows. Live like you know God cares. Live like you know God rules. See, you do that, you will make a difference.